All right. Good morning, everyone. Just come on in, grab a seat. Uh, like I said, if you uh, did not get a copy last week, uh, we have some more copies of Calvin's little book on the Christian life. Uh, so please, please grab them if you if you do not have it uh, or do not have your own copy of the Institutes. Uh, this is uh, this is what we'll be going through in this class. Well, I'm delighted to be back with you all uh, again this morning. Uh, like we did last week, I thought we would uh, have Calvin lead us in prayer again. Uh, and uh, the, his uh, scripture text, which is very uh, appropriate, uh, the, the foundational text of, of, this, uh, of this whole book on the Christian life, is uh, Matthew sixteen twenty four, which says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And with that in mind, let's now go to our Father in heaven uh, in prayer. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we offer you eternal praise and thanks that you have granted so great a benefit to us poor sinners, having drawn us into the communion of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, whom you delivered to death for us and whom you give us as the meat and drink of life eternal. Now grant us this other benefit, that you will never allow us to forget these things, but having them imprinted on our hearts, may we grow and increase daily in our faith, which is at work in every good deed. Thus may we order and pursue all our life to the ex- exaltation of your glory and the edification of our neighbors, through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, who in the unity of the Holy Spirit lives and reigns with you, O God, forever. Amen. Well, this week we are beginning now in, in the actual book. So again, grab a copy if you need one. Before we jump into this, I wanted to share with you a story of a French Huguenot and a, and a martyr. His name was Pierre de la Place. I actually mentioned him last week. Uh, didn't mention him by name. Uh, but if you remember, I mentioned uh, there was a French Huguenot who first translated this book on the Christian life in 1540 uh, into French, uh, originally written by Calvin, obviously in Latin uh, to begin with. Um, but he uh, could not wait for this part of the Institutes to be translated in, into French by Calvin himself, so he did the work to do that in 1540. And uh, because of his work, uh, Laplace was, uh, or he had put himself on a list of dangerous Protestants in the area. And uh, even though he would continue to live a somewhat peaceful life over the next several years, uh, that all changed in uh, 1572. 1572, uh, that was the year of the St. Bartholomew's uh, Day Massacre, which was August 23rd, 1572 in Paris. That was uh, the day of uh, of an extended uh, persecutions and killings of many of the uh, French Huguenots, the French Protestants uh, in the area. And so that massacre began on that night of August 23rd, and it lasted for several weeks. The French soldiers uh, started in, in the city of Paris and would spread out into the surrounding areas and regions and the countryside in search uh, for Protestants. Laplace, who, who was a known Calvinist at the time, he was a known Protestant because of his work that he had done uh, in translating uh, this book and, and in other things, uh, he was found uh, in his home uh, only a couple days after this massacre began. 
he was ordered to give an account of his beliefs in the presence of the king. And so he was making the journey into uh, Paris, uh, but he never uh, made that journey. And I'd like to just read uh, part of his story uh, to you guys. Uh, This is from uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, one of the earlier editions of it. Uh, This one from 1856. And of course, this this portrait, uh, which is found in an 1887 edition. But let me read a portion of of uh, Pierre's uh, story. Uh, as he, as he, uh, the, the French soldiers came uh, and ordered him to come, and he, he uh, said that he needed some time. And so they left, and then during that time, he sought refuge in some of the, the Catholic, some of his Catholic neighbors' homes. No one would give him refuge that night, and so he uh, resolved himself to his fate and returned back to his home. And uh, this is where I'll pick up the story. Uh, De Laplace, like a deer singled out for death, being refused admittance at three several houses, uh, returned to his own, where he found his wife overwhelmed with grief. But the Lord De Laplace, being strengthened by the Spirit of God with incredible constancy and calmness, demonstrated to her that we must receive afflictions from the hand of God and consoled her with the promises of the gospel. He then commanded all his servants that remained to be called together when according to his custom on the Lord's day, and this was a Sunday when this uh, took place, on the Lord's day he made an exhortation and offered prayer. Then he discoursed upon the justice and mercy of God and showed how needful afflictions were for Christians and that it was beyond the power of Satan or men to hurt or wrong them without permission of the Lord. What need have we then, he added, to dread their authority? which at at the most can but prevail over our bodies. He then exhorted them rather to endure all kind of torment, yea, death itself, than to speak or do anything that might tend to the dishonor of God. While thus employed, word was brought him that Seneca, the provost marshal, with a band of archers, was at the door, demanding admittance in the king's name, seeing that he came to secure the person of the Lord de Laplace and to uh, preserve the and to preserve his house from being pillaged by the rabble. De Laplace immediately commanded the door to be opened to him. Seneca, on entering, declared the great slaughter that was made upon the Huguenots everywhere in the city by the king's command, adding in Latin that he would not suffer one to live. Yet have I expressed charge from his majesty, he said, to see that you sustain no wrong, only suffer me to conduct you to the Louvre. Because the king is desirous to be informed about the affairs of those of the religion which he hath now in hand. De Laplace answered that it had always been his greatest wish, and nothing could render him more happy than to gain an opportunity by which he might give account to his majesty of his behavior and actions. But that such horrible massacres were everywhere committed, it was impossible for him to pass to the Louvre without danger of his life. He therefore prayed him to assure his majesty of his willingness to come, but to excuse his appearance until the fury of the people was somewhat abated. The provost agreed to this request and left him with one of his lieutenants and four of his archers. Soon after came President Charon, with whom the provost conferred a little in secret, and then left him with four more of the city archers. The whole night following was spent in fortifying all the passages and windows of the house with logs and flint stones for the defense of De Laplace and his family. Next day, Seneca returning, declared that he had expressed charge from the king to bring him to his majesty without delay. He replied as before that it was dangerous as yet to pass through the city, 
But Seneca insisted, saying, It is the common speech of these Huguenots to protest that they are the king's most loyal and obedient subjects and servants. But when they are to manifest their obedience to his commands, they come slowly, seeming rather to abhor and detest it. When de Laplace apprehended danger, Seneca answered that he should have a captain of Paris, well known to the people, to accompany him. At that moment, the captain named Pazon, a principal actor in this sedition, entered and offered his service to conduct him to the king. De Laplace refused, telling Seneca that Pazon was one of the most cruel and bloody-minded men in all the city. And therefore, seeing that he must go to the king, he entreated him to be his guard. Seneca answered that having now other affairs to look in, into, he could not conduct him above 50 paces. So now his journey was set. Uh, he was going to go with this Pazon character who uh, he did not trust at all, and he needed to make this journey now to the Louvre to meet with the king. The lady of De La Place then prostrated herself at the feet of Seneca, beseeching him to accompany her husband to the king. But her husband, Mr. De La Place, who never showed any sign of a dejected spirit, came to her and, lifting her from the ground, told her that it was not an arm of flesh that we must stoop to, but unto God only. Then turning round, he perceived in his son's hat a white cross, which he had placed there to delude the enemy or to deceive them, a white cross being the symbol of the French uh, monarchy at the time. So his son trying to... Uh, deceived by his clothing uh, to pretend that he was not um, a member of the Protestant cause, as it were. But his father sharply chided him and commanded him to pluck that mark of apostasy thence, telling him that they must now submit to bear the true cross of Christ, namely those afflictions and tribulations which it shall please God to lay upon us as pledges of that eternal happiness which he hath treasured up for his servants." Being now pressed by Seneca to go, as he foresaw to death, he took his cloak and, embracing his wife, earnestly exhorted her above all things to have the fear of God and his honor and precious esteem, and then boldly went on his way. Coming now into the street where the glass house stood, assassins waited his approach with their daggers in readiness and killed him as an innocent lamb in the midst of Seneca's archers who led him into that butchery. They then plundered his house of all they could find, while his body being dragged into a stable, they covered his face over with dung, and the next day threw him into the river. And as the story of the fate of this brave Huguenot and martyr who risked his own life to translate this, this book into French, into the language of his people, that the church might benefit from it. And these are our uh, forefathers of the Reformation. They gave their lives to this cause. They, they understood the importance of it. Uh, this is a life-changing book. This is a life-changing uh, reality. The, the, the Protestant Reformation that brought about uh, the, the ideas of justification by faith alone, salvation by God alone, through grace alone, and faith alone, and Christ alone. These were, these were important things, and uh, we would do well to follow in their footsteps, to, to accept whatever, whatever God has for us, uh, knowing that uh, he will bless us above all we can imagine. Uh, he's given us um, uh, in Christ everything we could ever need or want or desire. So I, I, I pray that that story uh, would be encouraging to you and to help us to understand the importance of, of this, this little book uh, that we're about to, to study.
Well, one more brief side note before we actually uh, study this book. I wanted to, I have several books up here, uh, briefly just a little show and tell. I want to make sure we're all on the same page about what we're studying in the institutes and, uh, and the different editions that are out there. And so I wanted just to walk through kind of the three um, main, main editions and translations that we have. Um, so there's just a quick um, uh, a slide here. So the first we talked about uh, last week this is a very common translation, the Beveridge translation, which was done in 1845. It's a public domain translation. So you can, this, if, if you need to look up the Institutes very quickly, you can do that online. You can search for it. The translation will, will come up. And then this edition that I'm holding is one that was typeset and bound by Hendrickson Publishers. It's very accessible uh, because it's public domain, so it's, it's uh, relatively inexpensive. You can find it for $20 and, and this uh, kind of set or 25, but it's it's older, so it's a little more difficult to read. But it's it's better than nothing. So uh, and this is done. Uh, this translation is from the 1559 Latin. That's the final edition of Calvin's Institutes that he made. The next one I mentioned this last week, but this is uh, this is the the Ford Lewis Battles uh, translated the Institutes again from the 1559 Latin. He did that in uh, 1960. So it's an updated English translation, much more readable. Uh, the only uh, downside is it's a little more difficult to uh, get your hands on, a little more expensive. Uh, it was originally done in these two, uh, it's two volumes, which is all four books of the Institutes in, in two volumes. So it's the exact same content. They are, it is still in print in a paperback form now. And um, this is this is uh, Rick Hutton's copy, so I just I, I took it from from his office just to show. Uh, but it, it's a gold uh, cover uh, edited by uh, uh, McNeil from Westminster John Knox. You can you can find it on their website. You can you can get it in the paperback. I think it retails around eighty dollars, so it is more expensive. You can find used copies online as well. But this is a really good English translation that I would recommend more if you can find it than than this one. The the final one. Translation. This is this is very new. 2017. Uh, Robert White finished a translation of the uh, 1541 French edition. So this is a different translation uh, or a different edition than these two. Uh, that's that is his uh, Calvin's second edition that he finished in 1539 uh, in Latin and then translated in 1541. And this has uh, the this is the first edition that had the chapter on the Christian life that's contained here. So this is what Mr. De La Place translated from. He, he took the last chapter of this edition from Latin and translated it into French in 1540, and then uh, a year later Calvin would translate the entire thing into French in 1541, and Banner of Truth did a, uh, a fresh translation of that French edition in this in this set here. So it's very readable. I highly recommend it. If you have not read the Institutes before, you want to read the Institutes, but are maybe uh, a little intimidated by the two volume, and they're about the same size, but this one is a little smaller, and I highly recommend it. It's very readable. Uh, this is in, uh, this is in just the chapter format, so it's a little bit different than the final edition. The final edition has the book, the book chapter section format, um, so we talk about, it's book three, chapter 6, and then there's, there's five sections in that chapter. Uh, that is something that Calvin did in his last edition of the Institutes. Uh, so this will not have that. It will just have chapters. But again, it's, the content is very similar, and uh, I highly recommend it. One last thing. There's, there's several different, um, 
summaries of of Calvin's Institutes. One I would recommend is um, this one by by Mark Beach, Reformation Heritage uh, Books. Published it called Piety's Wisdom. Uh, this is a summary of Calvin's Institutes, so it's it's much smaller. But he's he's using Calvin's own words, and so if, if that's something that uh, you're interested in, uh, this is a very helpful very helpful tool and introduction of sorts. He, he uh, did this for a Sunday school class of his own on the Institutes, where they were trying to go through the entire, the, the entire Institutes, and so he, he wrote this as a summary and developed that so that everyone could read it uh, for the class, and um, so that's very good. So I, I just recommend those to you. So those first three are the, the three main um, translations that we have, and then the summary, and there's, there's others out there as well, but are there, are there any questions about any of that or what we're doing? So for this class, we're in the Institute's Book 3, chapters 6 through 10. That's Calvin's discussion on the Christian life. That's the content of this little book. Are we all, is everybody clear on, on what we're, we're reading, what we're studying? Excellent. So we're getting into his, his discussion on the Christian life. And I, I came across this quote from B.B. From, uh, Warfield discussing, discussing this section of the Institute's. And, and he says, you know, for those reading the Institutes for the first time, uh, Warfield says, if you, would, if you would know the man, if you would like to know Calvin, if you would know the man, how he lived with and for God and the world, read first of all in the Institutes the section on the life of the Christian man. It is the portrait of himself. This is the portrait of Calvin. This is how Calvin lived. So this, this little book is a great introduction then to the Institutes, like we've said. Uh, and in his uh, letter to um, the reader in the 1559 edition of the Institutes, the final edition, Calvin writes that, uh, in the first edition of this work of ours, I did not in the least expect that success, uh, success which out of his infinite goodness the Lord had given. Although I did not regret the labor spent, I was never satisfied until the work had been arranged and the order set forth now. Now I trust that I have provided something that all of you will approve. Uh, so we see a bit of his humility there, a bit of his desire to always uh, strive for excellence. And, and so he, he finished that final edition in, in the arrangement he had, and he felt very confident that this is what uh, he uh, would, would benefit the church. And so we get now to this, this section on, on the Christian life. And if you have this copy, so we're going to start with chapter 1. So chapter 1, again, is this is from book 3, uh, chapter 6 corresponds to this, this first chapter on the Christian life. And, and he divides this chapter into five different sections. And so we're going to go through these different sections. The first, he uh, gives the general call from Scripture to Christian living. This is how Scripture is the guide that we have to Christian living. So Scripture is a guide, and then he's going to look at the instructions that Scripture gives for Christian living. What is, what is the instruction that Scripture gives us for how to live as a Christian. Well, it can be summarized in, in the call to love righteousness. That's what we're called to do. And there's two reasons he gives to love righteousness. We're to love righteousness because God is holy, and we're to love righteousness because the church is holy. Then in the third section, he's going to give us the ultimate reason why to love righteousness, and that's in Christ himself. And all these headings will be up throughout the class, so don't, don't stress to write them all down now. He's going to then turn his attention to, well, what about... These, these false Christians, he's going to say. 
there's some that, that profess to love Christ, but they, they don't show it in their actions. What's the relationship between true Christianity and righteous living? And then finally, he won't stop there, but he's going to turn in the final section to, well, what if, what if you are, can you, can you have assurance that you're a true Christian, even though you struggle with righteousness? That's something we all struggle with. Are we looking for perfection, or, or what, what are we looking for necessarily? So this is, this is the outline of this, this first chapter, this first um, part of the Christian life. So let's, let's begin now. So this is the, the first section, section one of the first chapter. And in this, this section, Calvin gives us the goal of God's work. He says the goal of God's work in us is to bring our lives into harmony and agreement with his own righteousness. That's the goal. That's how he begins this entire book. What, what, is, what is God doing? What's the goal of God's work in our lives? And, and so what, what is God's work? What, what, is, what specifically is Calvin referring to here? Well, he's talking about God's work of regeneration, God's work of, of salvation. Why does God work in our lives in this way? What's the, what's the end purpose? What's the telos? What's the, what's the goal? Uh, in, the, in the battles translation, actually makes that uh, explicit, that says the object of regeneration is to manifest in the life of believers a harmony and agreement between God's righteousness and their obedience. That is what God's, God's work is. It's, it's regeneration. That is the purpose of, of him regenerating us. His, God's purpose of, of him saving us is to bring us into harmony, is to make us holy as God is holy. And so in, in organizing the, the final edition of the Institutes into these, these four different books, like we mentioned, uh, so book one uh, is about the knowledge of God, the Creator, talks about uh, God the Father, as it were, the knowledge of God. Book two then uh, turns to God as Redeemer, talks about the work of, of Christ and all that He accomplished. And then book three turns now to uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, as it were, and the life of the Christian. How, how is the redemption accomplished by Christ, how is that applied to the believer, and what does that look like for the believer? And so he begins uh, with um, a discussion of regeneration and faith and sanctification, and now in, in this part of the institutes that we're in, he turns his attention to what does that look like in the life of the believer? What is, what is true regeneration? How will that look uh, for the believer? What will that, how will that manifest itself in the world? So that, that's where we're at now. And that's why Calvin, he took this content on the Christian life, and he put it in book three in, in that specific spot. In order to help his people and his readers make sense of this call uh, and this goal of God to make them holy, well, well how, how are we to do that practically speaking? This is a very practical, a very pastoral book. And so he uh, gives his, uh, his own goal his own uh, statement on, on his goal in writing this section of the Institutes. Uh, on page four of this book, in the middle, he says, my goal here is simply to present to godly people a model for ordering their lives. I intend, that is, to identify a certain universal principle to guide Christians in their duties. So the goal of God's work of regeneration is to make his people holy as he is holy, is to, is to conform them into the image of Christ and to his holiness and his righteousness. So that's God's, God's goal for our lives. And so Calvin, understanding that, he makes his goal in this book to help his readers understand what that means and what that looks like, to give them a model for how to accomplish that work as God is working in them so they are working in themselves to, to be holy as God is holy. I love on... Um, Previously on page three, he, he writes that we, we discover in God's law a picture of God's own image, 
to which we are being progressively conformed. But since we are lazy, <laughs> he says, and require prodding and encouragement in this, in, in this work of, of living out the Christian life, it'll be helpful to construct this work, in this work, a model of the mature Christian life. So, so that's what Calvin is wanting, wanting to do here. And by doing so, he, he says that we, will, we are going to prove or confirm that we are adopted sons and daughters of God. If we, if we look like our Father, we're going to prove that we are indeed His children. Uh, so we're, we're called to be holy. That's the calling we have as Christians. We're, we're Christ followers. We're to be just like our masters. Uh, though we are lazy, uh, Calvin is wanting to, to give us this, this helpful, this, this prodding uh, along. And so that, that's why he originally added this chapter again in his second edition of the Institutes as he's expanding his work. Uh, that's why he kept this, this content in every subsequent edition of his Institutes and, and puts it here now to, uh, to help his, his readers achieve uh, this goal. So he, he writes he wants to provide this, this model, uh, like we have on the screen, uh, this model uh, for ordering our lives. So the question is, where, where is Calvin going to turn uh, to create this model? Is this something that, that uh, he uh, will develop out of his own imagination? Is this something that he's going to write uh, his own uh, seven steps from, from his own life that he's developed over the years that he's found has worked for him? Where is he going to, to turn to develop this, this model for Christian living? Like last week... Uh, we mentioned one of the first uh, principles or the first uh, characteristics of Calvin's Institutes is that they are biblical. And so Calvin will turn nowhere else except to uh, Scripture to be the model for how to live. Uh, Scripture, Calvin writes, has uh, its own order and plan that is more beautiful and more certain than any uh, philosophic method. Uh, the, the philosophers, they desire to showcase their own skill and their own rhetoric and their own writings, but the Spirit has no such desire. Uh, like Paul uh, wrote in the, to the Corinthian church, uh, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is the same way that Calvin is, is uh, wanting to, to uh, demonstrate the call of Scripture in our lives and the model that Scripture has. This is, this is the M.O. of the Holy Spirit himself and of Scripture, to make the wisdom of the world foolishness, to demonstrate his own power through weakness. He makes the wisdom of men look like foolishness. He, he has his, his own method of doing things, and so we, uh, we should give ourselves to the study of Scripture uh, to see how we are to live. One final note on this first section, Calvin himself mentions that he is not providing a full discussion on the doctrine of sanctification. That really is what this book is all about, is, is sanctification. What does that look like, progressive sanctification throughout our lives? Calvin says that he's not going to provide a full discussion of that here. For that, for fuller discussions, we can look elsewhere, meaning looking to the fathers, to some of the medieval writers. Um, Bernard of Clairvaux, for example, is one of, one of Calvin's favorites. Rather, and one of the maybe funniest uh, quotes uh, from Calvin is that he mentions and he says that he himself, by nature, uh, loves brevity. That might be hard to believe when you look at the size of, of some of these institutes, that Calvin loves brevity. But he, in, in this case, what he's saying is, I'm not going to exhaust everything there is to say about sanctification here in just this little book. And, and so this book, this book is, is relatively small and easy to read, and, and that's, that's, um, that's Calvin's point here. We're not going to say everything there is to say about it, but uh, this will uh, introduce us to the topic. It'll help us grasp and, and put our arms around what it means to, to live a Christian life. 
And so that then, with this, this, general, this general discussion in this first section on, on Scripture's call, uh, or Scripture as, as the guide for Christian living, uh, we're going to look to Scripture alone as our guide for how to live the Christian life and how to pursue that goal. The, the question then becomes, you know, why are we pursuing this goal to begin with? Especially if, if we, we know that we, we really have no hope of ever achieving perfection in this life. And that's something that Calvin will discuss as well. But what, what's, the, what's the reason for, for doing this? So Calvin will turn then to this section, the second section. And as you're, um, just a note of, for those with this copy, so you'll notice in some, some, port, uh, some parts, um, he'll, he'll start a new section in here. With, uh, with three letters or three words that are bold. Those correspond to the sections in the Institutes. So, so there's, you'll notice that there's, there's five sections in, in this book. Each section begins with some uh, three words in bold, and that's how I'm organizing these slides. So you'll notice that as we go along. So we did the first section, and now on the bottom of page five, uh, Calvin writes, there are two main parts to the instruction from Scripture on the Christian life that follow. So that's where we are now in this second section, is Scripture's instruction for Christian living. And we can summarize that. Calvin summarizes it and says, call to love righteousness. That's what we're called to do. So there's, there's two main parts to the system of Christian living that Scripture instructs of us. Now the first, like I just mentioned, the love of righteousness, Calvin says, that must be implanted and poured into our hearts. So he says that's the first. That's the first thing. The second thing that we see from Scripture is that we need a model that will keep us from losing our way in our pursuit of righteousness. So the, the, the first is the inward change that needs to happen. The first thing is that we need to have a, a genuine love of righteousness. And then the second is an outward change that takes place. So the first thing is how our affections are changed, how, how we uh, are renewed in the whole man after the image of Christ. And the second then is how we are enabled and, and we begin uh, to more and more put to death the old man and and live in the new and put on the new. And so now, with this screen up here in front of you, this is an outline, or this is an organization of these five chapters, and I want to make sure we, we all uh, understand uh, this outline. It's, it's quite simple, but it can, uh, we can easily miss it, uh, but I want to make sure we all understand it. The first chapter then, so this is the first chapter in this book, which again corresponds to book three, chapter six, this is Calvin's discussion on that first part of the love of righteousness that needs to take place, that needs to be implanted and poured into our hearts. Then, the next four chapters, so the next four weeks of the class going forward, is Calvin's model that he's going to develop from Scripture. And each of those four chapters are going to look at different, the, uh, different ways that Scripture instructs us on how to, how to build a model of the Christian life, which um, he'll, he'll talk about self-denial is one of the main things that, the, that Scripture instructs us to do to live the Christian life. Self-denial also looks like cross-bearing. It also looks like uh, meditating on our future life, uh, the life that is to come. Uh, so all these things are, are the model for us on how to do it. But first, in this first chapter, he's going to talk about that inward change, the inward reality, the, the love of righteousness that takes place, God's work of regeneration in our hearts that changes our hearts, that changes our affections, and now we desire God and uh, don't desire the, the flesh and the, the, the ways in which we once walked. Now we have, we have new desires. We can summarize it like that at the bottom there. That scripture instructs us for, the Christ, for Christian living 
in two ways. First, by calling for the inward change of a genuine love for righteousness. And then two, by giving us a guide for how we can pursue righteousness without growing weary or without losing our way. So that's, that's the outline of this book. Are there any questions about, about that so we don't uh, get confused ourselves as we, as we continue going through? And let me pause here just for any questions uh, that you might have at all. Yeah. Yeah, the question, how do we actually love righteousness? That is the question. Thankfully, that's the content of this first chapter. So I think Buddy just gave us a good segue to keep on going. How, how do we love righteousness? It, it is a difficult question. It's, it, it is the question. How do we cultivate this love of righteousness? Well, that's where Calvin turns to next. Regarding this first point, so he, he turns now in the discussion, and he says, uh, as to the first point... Uh, scripture contains many arguments to encourage us on the path of righteousness. Many of these arguments I've noted elsewhere, and there's a footnote in this edition that, that points us to other places where, where Calvin does talk about that. It's very helpful by, by Drs. Parsons and uh, Denlinger. But, uh, there, so Calvin's saying there's, there's many arguments from Scripture that we can make. For, for me, for Calvin... He's going to make uh, just, just a couple, but really the, the ones that really everything else hangs upon. First, Calvin says, we are to love righteousness because God is holy. Uh, and because God is holy, he commands his people to be holy. So Calvin here, he has in mind Leviticus 19, which says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. It's as simple as that. We are simple to describe, difficult to, to do, but that's why we're studying this book and why we're, we're studying this class. But we're called to be holy because our God is holy. We're not our own, but we belong to God, and so His commands on our lives are, are what, we, what we are required to do. If you were um, in the class previous to this and studying uh, 1 Peter, Peter quotes from this as well in, in the, his first chapter, verses uh, 13 through 16. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, quoting from Leviticus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so Calvin's point here would be a mockery of our calling if we allowed ourselves to, to wallow in the filth of our sins and the sins in which we once walked that God brought us out of. It'd be a mockery of his grace, his mercy to us if we would go and uh, go back uh, into those sins and, miser- and misery out of, uh, out of which God has brought us. So we're to love righteousness, first of all, because God is holy, because he has called us to be holy. The second thing, Calvin says, a second argument he makes is that because the church is holy, God's dwelling place is holy, wherever God's dwelling place is, that, uh, that necessarily will be holy because God is holy. God is perfect. God, there's no uncleanness. There is no uh, iniquity. There's no unrighteousness in God. So Calvin quotes from, uh, from, from Hebrews 13, he alludes to Psalms 15 and 24. Who can ascend the holy hill of the Lord? As a word, it's not right that the sanctuary in which God dwells, Calvin says, should resemble a filthy, a stable. 
So we are, we are called to be holy because God is holy. We're called to be holy because his church is holy. The communion of, of the saints is holy. Uh, anything that we do individually affects the whole. That's a very important doctrine and truth of Scripture, that, that we, are, we are one body. We're the body of the Lord. And so when, when one of us sins, when one of us does something uh, or stumbles or falls, we, we all uh, feel the effects of that. And just in, in um, Paul's uh, analogy, he uses of the body. The hand has need of the foot, and, uh, and so on and so forth. We, we need one another. And so, buddy, to, to your point, we, we are as, as strong as uh, the weakest link, as it were. That's why we need to be encouraging one another, always edifying one another. That's, that's the call, or that's the, the, the second big reason that Calvin gives for loving righteousness is because we are God's dwelling place. We're the, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, uh, Paul will say. We, we are to, to live a certain way because of, of uh, our calling and the corporate nature of the church, that we belong to one another as we belong to the Lord. We're unified to one another in that sense. So Calvin will make those, those two arguments. He then turns... In the third section, he gives uh, an ultimate uh, reason to love righteousness. He makes this, this, this third section a third reason to love righteousness, and that is nothing short of the example of Christ. Christ is not only the perfect model for our pursuit of righteousness, but he is also the supreme reason for our pursuit of righteousness. He, he in, in himself, and his, his work, his life, and his ministry, Christ is the ultimate picture of true humanity. Christ was the best human being to ever live. And so if we want to know what humanity should look like, if we want to know what it means to be fully human, to, to live our lives to our fullest, which is always uh, something that we, we desire to do, or we, we get preached about by the world, to, to live your life to the fullest. Well, what does that mean? Does that, does that mean being your truest self? Does that mean going out on crazy adrenaline-filled adventures? Does it mean fulfilling all the items on your bucket list? What does that look like? Well, for the Christian, and for, for all the world, namely, for everyone, Christ is the picture of the most fulfilled human life because he was the perfect human, the only one that has ever lived. And so that's where Calvin turns to. He, he mentions that the philosophers of the day have no, or I should not say of the day, but the philosophers, referring to, to those uh, in the past, they have no better reason to call us to virtue than to say that uh, we are to live according to nature. He says on page 8, while doing their best to encourage us to be virtuous, they have nothing to say except that we should live according to nature. That's, that's the best reason they can come up with, Calvin says. He, he's most likely, maybe has a few people in mind when he writes this. One, you might remember Calvin's first academic work before he finished the Institutes. He wrote a commentary on uh, Seneca's work on clemency or on mercy. It was a, a treatise on ethics and, and mercy and, and virtuous living. Seneca, one of the, the famous uh, Stoic philosophers of the first century. So here, Calvin is, is thinking of him and even, again, is, is uh, thinking of, of uh, elsewhere where Seneca writes that to live happily is to live according to, uh, to nature. Well, for Calvin, that's not enough. That, that's not the foundation. Now, there, there's a lot to say about um, a good to uh, ascribe to some of the the stoic philosophy and and virtuous living there they didn't always not all they said was wrong but they didn't have the foundation that uh human nature has to have some some basis some foundation how do we understand what that ideal that we're shooting for how can we understand that if we don't 
know God, if we don't have that knowledge of God as creator, which is why Calvin begins his institutes with chapter or the first book on the knowledge of God as creator. If we, if we don't have that, how can we come to define what nature is or what this ideal should be? We can't do that unless we, we go first to scripture, to God's revelation, where human nature and human identity and human purpose is defined even in the first pages of Genesis. So scripture, uh, Calvin will write, scripture draws its encouragement or its exhortation from the true fountain. So here's how the philosophers are trying to encourage us to virtuous living. Here's how scripture encourages us to virtuous living. It has the true fountain, the true foundation. It's uh, the knowledge of God as creator as he's revealed himself uh, to us in his word. And so, in contrast to these philosophers, Calvin, Calvin puts forth Christ as the, the true and better philosopher, as it were. And he, uh, I, love, I love how he uh, describes this on pages 10 and 11 in, in rapid succession, tells us and lays out for us why our union with Christ, why it forbids us to continue in unrighteousness. And he says that it would be inappropriate, therefore, for us to defile, uh, to defile ourselves with fresh filthiness. Christ has engrafted, uh, engrafted us into his body. We, therefore, who are his members, must be especially careful not to fling mud or filthiness on the body of Christ. Christ, our head, has ascended into heaven. We, therefore, must set aside earthly affections and wholeheartedly long for that place. The Holy Spirit has consecrated us as temples of God. We, therefore, must let the glory of God shine through us, and we must not pollute ourselves with sin. Our bodies and souls have been destined to heavenly incorruption and an unfading crown. We, therefore, must strive upward, keeping ourselves pure and incorruptible until the day of the Lord. These are most holy foundations on which to build the Christian life. Nothing like these can be found in the philosophers, who in their commendation of virtue can never rise above the dignity that natural man can achieve. We can't achieve this understanding, this purpose of, Christian, of the Christian life and of, of fulfillment of life merely from uh, natural law, from that, that knowledge of God uh, through nature. But we need grace. We need his special revelation. We need the scripture to teach us what it means to be truly, fully human. So Calvin says, you cannot merely give lip service to Christianity. You can't merely give lip service to Christ, but your life has to model it in some way. And so that leads to one of Calvin's most important phrases in this, in this section, uh, one of his most well-known, where he says, doctrine is not a matter of the tongue, but of life. And what's interesting about this, uh, this quote, there's an interview that uh, Burke Parsons gives uh, on, the, on his translation. And the, so this quote is on, on page, the bottom of page 12 in this book. So he says, this was a difficult phrase to translate because he wanted to add a word where Calvin didn't add a word. He wanted to add the word merely. He wanted to say doctrine is not merely a matter of the tongue, but of life. And his point is, Calvin, Calvin is not saying that what, what we say doesn't matter. He's saying that they both matter. So in this way, Calvin's really, he's, he's, giving, he's telling us what, what the book of James tells us, that faith uh, without works is not true and living faith. Uh, we are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. There's always accompanying fruit and evidences of saving faith. And so, so that is Calvin's point here in this fourth section, is that uh, doctrine is not a matter of the tongue, not a matter of the tongue only. What we say does matter, but it's also a matter of life. It's how we live. And that's why he'll go on to say that neither is Christian doctrine grasped only by the intellect and memory 
as truth is grasped in other fields of study, but rather doctrine is rightly received when it takes possession of the entire soul and finds a dwelling place and shelter in the most intimate affections of the heart. And so he concludes, or one of his concluding statements here is to say, so let such people stop lying or let them prove themselves worthy disciples of Christ, their teacher. So you claim to be a Christian, well, prove it. If you are a Christ follower, that's what the word means. If you're a Christian, if you are a little Christ, as it were, if you are a Christ follower, then, then prove it. Or stop, stop lying and saying you are a Christian. So that's a very uh, uh, difficult uh, saying. But again, remember, Calvin is a very compassionate pastor. He's not a cold, aloof, ivory tower theologian, but he's, he's, a, uh, he's a loving uh, pastor and shepherd for his people. And so he understands that these words he just wrote, they're difficult. And so he turns then to this final section in this first chapter and thinks on his, his dear congregation, his flock that might be struggling, really struggling, thinking, well, that, that sounds like my life. I, I, I don't think and I don't feel like I'm living up to the standards that, that uh, God has, uh, that God requires of us. And so that's where he turns now to those, those true Christians who are struggling with sin or struggling with doubt or struggling with assurance. And he's saying, do not despair. There, there's no reason to despair. And he gives three general reasons why. Three, three kind of uh, guides or tests that we can, we can see if we are truly following Christ or not. He begins, um, first of all, by saying that uh, the Christian life will, will never be pure gospel, as in it'll, it'll, you're, ne- you're never going to have perfection. None of us are going to find perfection. If we, were, if we were required to be perfect, the churches would be empty, uh, because there, there wouldn't be any perfect people in the churches. And in fact, there are no perfect people in the churches, but there are still true Christians and believers and sons and daughters of God in our churches. And here's, here's three ways that, that we can know, uh, or that you can be assured of of that, of your status before God, grounds of your assurance if you are struggling. The first thing he says is uh, the word of God is, is the guide of, of the Christian. So if, if, you, if you love the word of God, if you are seeking to make the word of God your guide in your life, if you are seeking to live your life in accordance to God's law, in accordance to what he, he commands of us and what he requires of us in his scriptures, if you, if you love the word, if you, if you do truly seek to, to know God's word, that is a sign. That is a that is a, a description of of the Christian. As he he loves the word, and obviously that's mentioned throughout his his book and also here. That goes along with the second thing, is is that the the Christian uh, Christians they they walk in integrity or they they walk in sincerity. This is this is connected to a love for God's word. Is that we use God's word as our guide with with integrity, which is Calvin's point here in the next uh, few pages. We, we don't use God's word as a way of, or we don't seek to obey God's word as a way of bartering with God, of saying, well, I don't really want to give up this pet sin, but if you help me out over here, maybe you help me sell my car, maybe, maybe you give me that promotion. God, if only, if only I would do, do this, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. That kind of mentality, kind of thinking of God as some kind of cosmic butler where we can, we can ring his bell, we can make a deal with him. He, he's here to help us. That, that's not at all what uh, Calvin is saying here. This is a really important doctrine and one of the corruptions of the medieval church, which they had this idea that we could do works that were above and beyond what God required of us, and that these, these works would be deposited in some kind of treasury of merit. And this, this went along with that concept of indulgences, where good people could build up a treasury. They could use these extra merits and give them to other people, give them to family members in purgatory, give them to, to others to assist them. Calvin's saying that, no, that's not biblical at all. In fact, 
If we do everything that God commands, we still only remain unprofitable servants. The parable in Luke chapter 17. So that's why the, the, the Reformation battle cry of grace alone was so important. Uh, what we do does not ever merit us any... any um, and it doesn't get us any, any merit before God. It never, it never creates indebtedness for, for God to us. We don't, we don't ever do anything to, to make God our debtor as if he, he owes us anything. But uh, everything short of perfection, that, that is what God requires of us. And so, so when we understand that uh, and we're walking with uh, integrity, if, we're, we're, uh, if we are walking with that, uh, that understanding that we are not doing this to, to earn our salvation, we're not doing this to earn favor with God, but we're doing it out of sincere love for God, out of, because of what he has done for us in Christ. And so that is, that's one, one mark or one, one reason to be assured is, is you, you have a love for Christ, you have a desire to do what he commands and what he requires of you in the gospel because you know all that he has done for you already. And so then that leads to the final thing that he mentions here is a marker of true love for righteousness in your life. It's, are you making progress in your sanctification? And emphasis on the last part, even if it's small, even if it's a little progress, you will see progress. And I love, we'll we'll end with uh, Calvin's words on, on page 16 here. He says, of course, none of us is capable of running swiftly on the right course while we remain in the earthly confinement of our bodies. We're not able to do this perfectly. Indeed, most of us are so oppressed with weakness weakness, that we make little progress, staggering and limping and crawling on the ground. But let us move forward according to the measure of of our resources and pursue the path we have begun to walk. None of us will move forward with so little success that we will not make some daily progress in the way. Therefore, let us keep trying so that we might continually make some gains in the way of the Lord. And neither let us despair over how small our successes are. That's a great way to, to end our time this morning, is that this, this call to the Christian life is a heavy calling. It's a difficult calling. It's, it's very difficult to cultivate this love of righteousness. But the promise of Scripture and the promise we have of the Holy Spirit in us, which is our guarantee of our salvation and our future life with Christ, we will see progress. Even, even small progress is a sign of is assigned to us, the, the evidence of saving faith, the fruit of saving faith. So Calvin doesn't want any of his readers, any of his, his uh, congregants in his church in, in Geneva to despair. He would also have none of us uh, despair in our struggle for uh, purity and holiness and love of righteousness, but to, to press on and keep fighting the good fight, knowing that as we, as we continue this work, uh, God is also at work in us, uh, conforming us to his image. Thank you. We will pick up next week on the next chapter.